good morning, good afternoon, good evening, anywhere you are. It's lovely to have you all here. It's amazing to, to see all of you uh, in this very, very lovely Monday. Uh, as you all know, my name is Dewin Justiniano. I'll be your host uh, tonight. And it's a great pleasure for me to always see you all and, and as we all learn from our speeches and from our, uh, our speakers. Um, and this is the beauty of Rotary Club of Worldwide Impact as we are part of an organization, the beautiful Rotary International, that it's made of a global network of one point million neighbors, friends, leaders, problem solvers, in more than 46,000 clubs doing service above self. We're doing this locally, globally, and in our case, digitally. As a Rotary Club, we approach every conversation as if we are on a shared learning journey. Our goal is to connect and to hear from fascinating and inspiring speakers, uh, often with a message focused on the power of ideas to change lives and ultimately the world. Awesome to bring us a little bit of inspiration that allow us to think how we can make a difference as well. We're glad, we're very excited uh, that you have joined us and we hope you enjoy how we explore technology in service um, above self. Tonight, our guest connects with us from South Devon in England. Professor Mark Hanford is the founder and CEO of World Extreme Medicine. Uh, Professor Mark has also delivered the first Master in Science in Extreme Medicine taught at Russell Grove University of Exeter and the world only extreme medicine annual conference now in its 11th year. Also, Professor Mark has lived a life of full adventure having led and being part of expeditions to all of the world's continent. But it was an encounter, a very interesting encounter with a Nile crocodile in the Namibian and Angola border that set him off on a journey that has led him to create a medical subdiscipline in extreme medicine. And something that you might not know about him is that when he is not changing the face of remote medicine, Professor Mark is engaged in delivering life-saving trauma supplies in the frontline medical community in Ukraine through Medics for Ukraine. And, has, and he has established a training team rotation providing advanced combat casualty training for medics on the frontline. And this initiative has delivered over 1.3 million um, pounds worth of trauma supplies to Ukraine. Uh, we are thrilled to have you tonight, Professor Mark. I'll hand the mic over to you. Welcome to Rotary Club of Worldwide Impact. Thank you, guys. Thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to be here speaking to the Rotary Club and a pleasure to be speaking to everybody here that's sort of online, but also those of you that will be watching it later on. And I guess one thing I would add to that is also I was elected or voted, uh, awarded and, uh, by the Explorers Club in New York, uh, NEC 50 Award, which is 50 people changing the world that the world needs to, to know about. So I was quite pleased with that. And also since we wrote that bio, that kind of the figures have gone up. So we're closer now to 1.4 million pounds worth of trauma supplies delivered to Ukraine and also up towards 500 medics being trained. So hopefully technology will be with us. And as um, it's being highlighted, I'm the, the founder of a kind of global organization, which is quite niche in its interest called World Extreme Medicine, which essentially trains medical professionals to work in sort of austere in remote areas and at times dangerous locations and you know from our point of view we kind of sit at the indices of these different types of of medicine which traditionally and previously were sort of quite siloed they'd sit in their sit in their silos you know advanced by themselves but actually the sharing of knowledge wasn't as as great as it could be and in terms of improving medicine in remote areas so you know the pre-hospital environment where we're talking about air ambulances there we're talking about mountain rescue groups the coast guard groups that i'm a member of here in the uk 
you know, the special forces and tactical medicine, actually a lot of great medicine, sadly, comes out of warfare and conflict. But history has taught us that actually those conflicts do push on by big leaps, medicine. And again, the recent conflicts have done that. And, you know, the conflict in Ukraine will undoubtedly do that as well, because the the morphology of injury in Ukraine actually is very different to the to the conflicts we've had most recently. Um, and then the expedition and wilderness bit, which is where I'm from, which is where my sort of my background is from. So actually, I'm a non-clinician. My background is in austere travel and uh, expedition logistics and making sure people, when they go out on these big expeditions, you know, trying to ensure that they all come back in one piece and with all their bits attached. But also the disaster and humanitarian responding to sudden onset disasters, you know, to earthquakes, to hurricanes. And then lastly, but certainly not least, is space and aviation, because a lot of new science takes place up in the International Space Stations. It's a unique research environment, but also the space community, NASA, the European Space Agency um, and the others, you know, they research and spend a lot of time and a lot of energy working out how to keep their astronauts safe in remote locations. Everywhere in space is, is, is remote and everywhere in space is trying to kill you. So they will spend a lot of time and a lot of effort trying to keep their astronauts and space travelers alive. So, you know, bringing in those different sort of silos of knowledge and building a community in the middle called extreme medicine, you know, is our kind of is our aim. Um, and, you know, we've gathered around us, I, I guess, sort of 250,000 people who follow us, medical professionals around the globe. So, you know, some of the conversations on our on our chats, when when somebody asks a question about a remote disease, some of the input is incredible in terms of um, the knowledge and the experience that sits out there in that community. And we're providing like a platform, a a community where they where that knowledge can be shared through the MSC program, as you, as you kindly pointed out in the conference. We can justifiably say that actually we're one of the few stages, communities in the world where your tactical medicine, special forces medicine community can sit on the same stage as your humanitarian and disaster medicine colleagues. And with NASA and, and the European Space Agency and others, typically those are, you know, those are difficult bedfellows in terms of the politics, but actually the politics of our communities about better medicine in remote areas. So nobody's wearing a uniform, the politics are left behind. And actually the underlying, the current theme is medicine and how we make it better and how we actually save lives, how we improve medicine, how we improve recovery from trauma and actually how we work as a community to deliver that better. Um, and as you kindly mentioned, we, we run um, an MSc in extreme medicine at the moment, it's, it's, it's at the University of Exeter Medical School, but to be launched towards the end of the year is Northeastern University in Boston and the third master's course down in Australia. So what we want to do is also back all of what we do and all of what we talk about by academic sort of rigor to make sure, you know, I think the loss of sort of urban myths get carried through with this type of medicine, because one person says to somebody else from what happened in their last expedition, it seemed to work and therefore it becomes the truth. We want to work on that, but we also want to dispel some of those myths by having academic rigor, looking at these sort of the practice, modes of practice and making sure they are correct. But also, in, you know, invigorating and investing in new research. So actually the whole field moves on further and further. And I think there were two reasons for that. Well, in fact, there were three reasons. One is, you know, extreme medicine and the, and the practice of this type of medicine really came to the fore with a global COVID pandemic. Now, often within hospital systems, the only people that actually had the type of experience that initially was needed to deal with a pandemic of the COVID size were the extreme medics. They were the people who had experience from Ebola. They'd had experiences from working in sudden onset disasters or working in a military setting. Now they had the knowledge to take your sort of big city hospitals and turn them into COVID hospitals. The second bit, and it's, uh, it's, you know, it's on all of our minds, I would suggest, is climate change. Climate change is going to create an environment where actually a lot of our medicine, a lot of our healthcare is going to be taken out of its traditional setting, will need to be applied in remote areas or less remote areas, but in low resource areas. 
And this is going to become more and more the mainstream medicine that we'll be practicing. So extreme medicine, you know, is perfectly placed to not only prepare those medical professionals, both in a clinical sense, but also in the sort of non-clinical skills that they'll need in terms of being able to run logistics, in terms of health and security, looking after themselves. Um, you know, the mental resilience needed to deal with these situations is going to be, is going to come to the forefront. It's already a big part of medicine, or at least it should be in most countries. But as climate change and the world changes as a result, that's going to become more and more important. And actually, medical professionals with this second skill set of skills, this toolbox of skills, you know, the ability to work in teams, to be both the leader and a good team member is going to become more and more important. We get to work with some incredible partners, um, including the AMA service. This is at NASA NEMO. This is the analog training center for NASA prior to deployment into space. It's an underwater habitat. It's the closest on Earth that, you know, astronauts can get to actually being on the International Space Station. Now, since the beginning of, of the um, pandemic, we've been really fortunate to work with an amazing partner in terms of Paramount Studios. You know, we've worked on a number of films, including Mission Impossible, Jack Ryan, Transformers. You know, really, for us, it's been an incredible partnership. But as I've intimated, we also get to, to work with incredible folk from organizations like NASA. In fact, we have our own annual conference, the 19th to the 21st of November in, in Edinburgh. And we have three amazing astronauts coming to share their knowledge, not only about space medicine, but also working in austere global resource environments and how they've ended up in space. But as kind of was highlighted at the beginning of this presentation, you know, as a non-clinician, how did I kind of happen into this field and become, um, I guess, a leader in this field? And I have been sort of working in this environment for the last 27 years. And it all comes down to this crocodile, well, in fact, not this crocodile, this is a this is a uh, a stock image, but a crocodile of this type. We were on the border between Angola and Namibia, um, on the banks of a river called the Kanani River, and we were doing a reconnaissance, so a site visit for uh, an expedition that we we're planning. Normally, these planning visits are really tight for time. You're rushing through. You're trying to get as much done as you possibly can, and you don't have much time for relaxation except for this one trip where we decided actually we were going to plan it properly and rather than rushing we were really going to enjoy the area that we were running our reconnaissance through so we had a rule that at past midday if we saw the the world's you know life's most beautiful campsite then we would stop it wouldn't matter whether that was quarter past 12 or whether it's five o'clock in fact we wouldn't stop until we saw that most amazing campsite but this was such an incredible area. Actually, as often as not, by one o'clock, we'd see this area and think, we just have to camp there because that is just mind-blowingly stunning and beautiful. So often by two o'clock or half past two, we kind of get a little bit fractured, a little bit bored. So we decided to set ourselves a daily challenge. And today's challenge, or this particular day rather, I was traveling, as I mentioned, with two Namibians um, who had crossed over the border a number of times during the, the war, the guerrilla war with, with the guerrillas based in Angola. And they wanted to kind of take a trip down memory lane by crossing the river. Now, there were no road crossings. There, were no, there was no way to walk across. But it was deemed to be safe because using their expert knowledge, there was a massive waterfall. I mean, a really quite substantial waterfall just downstream. And also above us, there were quite substantial rapids and their advice was well of course with the waterfall crocodiles don't climb and with the rapids you know we're pretty safe swimming across this big wide kind of brown turpid river that was flowing pretty strongly but in a kind of languid way but almost like sort of you know like a chocolate river because it was just so sort of turpid with sediment but fortunately three quarters of the way across there was a rock so we could go in upstream catch and run and swim tangentially to the current, land on this rock, get our breath back, and then do the last quarter, the easy quarter, just by swimming straight across. You know, and all being experienced expeditioners, we got into the water at the perfect place. We pitched it absolutely right in terms of catching the current and aiming towards this rock. You know, we were pretty pleased with ourselves, and we were nicely spaced one behind the other, 
talking, chatting in control. When we got about five meters from this rock, when this rock stood up and four armored reptilian legs looked at us disdainfully and slid into the river. Now we're committed to landing on this rock, which is now substantially smaller because from a distance it looked big. That looked big because there was a crocodile on top. Now the crocodile is in the water. So we landed on the rock, now smaller with three grown men, you know, sort of planning our next move. But I've used my hands quite a lot in this presentation. I'm clearly standing up. So the spoiler is none of our limbs were lost in the maze of this story. But we, we faced a decision. We decided that we, we needed to, to swim to Angola because actually that was the easy, the easy bit, the last quarter of the easy bit. But the dilemma came when we had to get back across the river. And as I mentioned, there was no crossings, there were no habitations. Certainly the two people I was with didn't want to be um, availing themselves of, the, of a relationship with the Angolan, Angolan authorities because some misunderstanding might have taken place. So we had to swim back, but back through this same river, knowing now if there's one crocodile, there's more. So we swam back across. And as I started to approach the far bank, I actually realized from my own expedition life in Australia that it was perfect crocodile territory. Coming from that way, you could see it. Coming from looking the other way, you couldn't. And actually what or most killed me was not the fact that a crocodile came close and took a snap but it was panic and I realized that actually you know my heart started and I started to panic and I suddenly realized I needed to get a grip and actually clearly I did do that but it was a it was a mental bridge to come up to, to get over but reflecting on our experiences around the campfire that night I realized that actually well who can do expeditions we needed to have a decent medical system and then when we started building that up we suddenly realized well actually if we can have a decent medical system why don't we bring a medic with us um, and that's actually what we ended up doing on all of our expeditions all of our expeditions had a professional medic there who was kind of employed by us so they went on a holiday they were actually employed so we could if we had a casualty and somebody needed to be sent home we could send them with the casualty but we realized also that our medics whilst extraordinary and, and brilliant weren't used to working outside of hospitals and we needed to train them. And kind of that's where the story started, a training medics to work in remote and austere and dangerous locations, both on and off the planet. And that's how World Extreme Medicine came to be. And I think this is where we catch up with the modern day. And we've been going for almost 25 years now, 27 if we, if we count sort of the stuff that we were doing on our expeditions. And catching up with the modern day, you know, like the majority of people watching now and um, those of you watching on, on the recording, you know, I was horrified by the invasion of Ukraine. It seemed to me like history had sort of gone back 50 years and we were back in a sort of, I don't know, a kind of post-World World War II world. It would just horrified me. Um, and initially, we thought, what can we do? What can we do? And then we suddenly realized actually part of our teaching in our conference is, you know, there's no point rushing into these sudden onset disasters. You need to prepare yourself and actually deliver the right aim, right aid at the right place with the right people. So we, we stood back for a couple of weeks to watch and observe what the major agencies did. But Ukraine is such a big country. The logistics are so long. It's, and there was so many people involved in such big geographical areas, we realized that actually in our very specialized area, delivering and advanced trauma care and wilderness and uh, remote medicine in low resource environments, there was really not an awful lot going on. So we decided to, to create something called Medics for Ukraine. I literally asked for a straw poll of those people in my faculty who would like to be involved and those people who stuck the, uh, put their hands up and actually uh, started to do stuff, you know, that's the faculty I built around me. You know, and we've been to Ukraine, and as you kindly pointed out, we've delivered over 1.4, nearly 1.4 million pounds of worth of trauma supplies and trained almost 500 special forces and, and military medics. But this is a war, this is a conflict where actually it's very much the civilian population is caught up in the conflict, one by the nature of the conflict, but also because of the 
the clear transgressions of the Geneva Convention. This is a uh, a jet wheel from the fuselage from the body of a plane going over a small remote village. And I think one of the things that I find personally about this conflict and I'm able to relate to, we have done similar projects in Syria delivering a pediatric hospital when the last pediatric hospital was destroyed in Aleppo and not dissimilarly just delivering um, educational resources to our medical colleagues in Myanmar during the coup. You know, they, they weren't used to gunshot wounds and blast injuries. So we produced a lot of material that was both in English and in, um, in Burmese for our colleagues there. But this is so much like the rest of Europe. You know, this could be your parents' house, your family's house, your grandparents' house. And behind this wheel was a house of, a, of a, an older lady who was cooking dinner one night when this jet was shot down over the village. You know, it traveled through the village, leaving a sort of burning swathe of destruction through people's houses and the house behind. Most of the houses, you know, are there, still there, but badly damaged. Behind was just completely incinerated, along with, sadly, the woman who was cooking in her kitchen. So this is this isn't just between armored vehicles and soldiers and soldiers. This is so impactful on the human environment, uh, the, the civilian environment, you know, just you know, your motorways into Kiev, you know, are dotted, were, or certainly were dotted with destroyed tanks. You know, and I, I feel sorry for the people inside that tank. Um, you know, these are holiday homes in on the outskirts of Kiev, where clearly they'd been, people had saved up for these houses for their lives. You know, this is their retirement homes. And because of the invasion, they've just simply been destroyed. There are still people living above and sort of in some of the remnants of flats which have some sort of, of of weatherproofing. But, you know, when we visited these and we were on the ground in the garden in front, the parking, one, of the things that, one thing that struck me really strongly, aside from the obvious devastation and the destroyed vehicles and, you know, the smell of recent death, were the dogs. The dogs whose owners are no longer there. You know, who, who were clearly desperate for affection, but also uh, suffering from shell shock. It wasn't something I'd really thought of shell shock in animals, but they were clearly um, suffering their own mental battle. Now, the next couple of images is um, have um, slightly distressing. They're not gruesome, but they are slightly distressing. This is, um, and the next image is the one that's just slightly distressing. This is a young man, a chef, who was going out to his back garden in the middle of the night, going for a weed and watering his plants when a missile landed indiscriminately. He was nowhere near a military target. He unfortunately lost both his legs in that explosion and he tourniqueted himself in his garden. He lost his wife in the house. The house was destroyed. He tourniqueted his own legs and survived the night until a patrol in the morning picked him up in real life and got him to medical care. But, you know, this young man's life has been destroyed for no reason. This is a chef going to the toilet in his garden in the summer, in the middle of the night. This should just not be happening. Not dissimilarly, this is a farm labourer again working in his in his uh, in his field, and again, you know, because of the ludicrousy of this invasion, you know, his life has been forever changed. And I do wonder whether that individual himself has actually survived the trauma of his incidents. So we decided we've been focused on delivering life-saving trauma supplies. We don't actually necessarily deliver to the military. Actually, it's whose need is greatest, but clearly the need on the front line is fairly great. And so we built relationships with units scattered throughout Ukraine where we deliver trauma supplies. The idea is we deliver these boxes and it will last a medic, you know, like a mini field hospital for, for five days. And I'm going to show you a quick video, if you don't mind. Um, the first box is half empty, but the others are full. But it says maybe it's not the best video, but it shows. Hello, dear friends, we get a new helping from World Extreme Medical, and this is so very thankful for everybody who helping us. Right now we're in Kherson region, on the zero line. It's not a lot of us here, because right now we remove so quickly 
but we want to open those boxes and show what we get from our friends. First of all, a lot of bandages, uh, a lot of fixings, a lot of stuff like that you can see. We really need it because, you know, it's right now our military, we're going forward too fastly and we really need your help. And I believe that everything what we get from yours will help us. So, and that was obviously filmed in the summer and the, and, you know, um, the circumstances have changed since then we're into winter and then the, you know, the, the advance is slowing down. This is the, uh, the major the, uh, lieutenant colonel in charge of one of the big trauma, uh, military trauma hospitals. You know, he describes talking about people, you know, people, our parents age, our grandparents age, turning up to the hospital with injuries, but their life packed into two test, you know, two carrier bags and that's all they have left. So how do we do this? We do it we're using volunteers. Everybody, in fact, everybody in the organization is, is gives their time freely. Um, this, slide, this slide shows us crossing the border into Ukraine from Poland. And on the left is our amazing fixer called Svetlana, who picks us up day or night, doesn't matter what time it is. And quite often it is four or five o'clock in the morning as we go across the border when they're, when they're quiet. Um, and she's been dis she's ukrainian been displaced by the invasion and is now uses her entire sort of time to support people like ourselves ferrying people back and backwards and forwards across the border border crossings can at times take five or six five or six hours so hers is a, an endless task and one that she does with with utter dedication and and a great deal of humor we use uh, volunteers in UK to drive um, our supplies out to to the to Poland, where they then cross over the border with the great help of the Polish Red Cross to our, our warehouse in uh, Western Ukraine, where it then gets distributed. We use local volunteers who head up an organization there to interface between us and the, the people that we supply, whether that's civilian or sort of military units. And then we work with the you know units themselves or hospitals themselves to explain and to train them on the material that we're giving them but it isn't just limited to to sort of the conflict medicine if you like or supplying the units that are, that are on the front line you know a number of the hospitals in ukraine itself you know are running are amazing and they have amazing staff but they fall short sometimes of you know critical ingredients for their treatment plans like this whole hydrocortisone was in short supply before the conflict. Now it's virtually impossible. So, you know, delivering on request medications like that to hospitals across Ukraine, and then giving individual units, individual uh, medics, these people were all civilians before the invasion, civilian medical professionals. Now they've been constricted in and they're unit medics or, or sort, of, um, sort of field hospital medics. So giving them the supplies and equipment that they need but also, and importantly, training. We, you know, we can bring the experience that sort of our faculty, our wider faculty, our sort of global faculty have of providing military medicine in different places and bring this to Ukraine and give them survival skills, not only for them themselves as individuals, but also for the people that they're treating. You know, if we can treat, if they can treat, the Ukrainians can treat their casualties quickly and effectively on the battlefield one their survival has obviously improved but also downstream their recovery and the and the quality of that recovery is greatly greatly increased so it's providing training teams we we have one training team that's just coming out of ukraine today and we have another one that's in country uh training a, um, a number of people tomorrow and they will be there for the next sort of two weeks so, I mean, in fact, these these figures are actually now out of date. So, um, you know, we're up to 350 sort of uh, special operations medics um, and we're up to almost 1.4 million pounds worth of trauma supplies, as I've already mentioned. So, and all of our operational costs are either covered by myself or World Extreme Medicine. So, you know, every penny, dollar, dirham, euro that people donate goes literally into paying for supplies. All the transport and everything else is is paid for by by myself or world extreme medicine and what do we need of course in order to buy supplies we need money money helps 
but also we've found that actually lots of people have trauma consumables they have bandages they have hemostatic agents which you put on a wound a bleeding wound to stop the bleeding they have um, and as winter approaches they have cold weather clothing and sleeping bags that actually we would otherwise buy so if we can get donations of those that really does help and if they you know if people can get them to our our uh, distribution hub either in poland or in the uk that really helps and actually access to near expired supplies because this stuff gets used so quickly in ukraine actually the fact that it's near its due date actually really is not here nor there in this environment you know and i would highlight all the people in that picture were civilians before the invasion these are not professional soldiers these are people who were chefs who were drivers who were managers marketing managers and obviously medical professionals now this has been foisted on them so you know the the support we can give them goes a long way it also demonstrates that they're not fighting this invasion by themselves that actually people outside of ukraine are also as as um is equally disturbed by what has happened as they are themselves um so that kind of sums up in a sort of whirlwind tour what we do at world extreme medicine and, and as, as i mentioned it's a great pleasure to and an honor to to uh to be joining you tonight thank you so much professor mark i i'm, I'm a specialist Jeff. wow i think all of us we have learned so much from 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 your presentation um Thank you so much for sharing your experience, uh, your work, and all the all the big scope of world uh, extreme medicine. Now we we open uh, the time for Q and A. If any of our colleagues, guests have any questions, we are delighted to to open this time for questions and answers. You're welcome to open your microphones. You can raise your hand using the virtual icon here in Zoom, or you can also add your question in the chat uh, option. As, as I mentioned uh, previously, Mark, over these 27 years of working in this field, um, I, I know that you have faced so many challenges, especially in recent in recent years. In regards to to the current challenges in in Ukraine, could you could you share with us a little bit more about all those challenges in terms of the military training, which we believe it, it's it's a little bit complicated in in these kind of circumstances. I guess I guess the challenge was that um, initially we've been used to working on a sort of worldwide basis, but actually, you know, the working in Ukraine wasn't a place that we had an awful lot of knowledge about. So. That was our initial challenge was setting up a, a network and we needed to, you know, bearing in mind, we were taking people's sponsorship, people were giving us money, you know, our friends, our community, the, you know, the wider society, you know, we had an obligation to make sure that money was spent well, and we can actually we can do that, but, but make sure it's being delivered to the people that needed it. So that was our first challenge. And that sort of um, we were really lucky in so much as we we set up a network that kind of loosely went far the um the polish fire brigade and the sort of led to some other people that led to some other people and as these things do but you know it became a trustworthy link each way each way the second bit um is providing you know the ukrainians are doing an absolutely amazing job and it's you know what we're doing is just adding i think we're adding that little bit of technical knowledge on top of what they already know we're giving the confidence, giving them the confidence that what they're they're doing is right. I think there's a, there's a little bit of sort of sort of feedback in terms of that. And as I've mentioned, the, the other thing is we're we're letting them know that they're not alone. Actually, people do care about this. And also for the the more senior medical professionals, there it also gives them the ability to ring a friend. So they're you know they they they've got somebody they can check with that they're thinking is right and it's just sort of a call a friend in some respects you know these you know the training teams when they're on the ground will then give out contact details so they can they can do that the the third bit is i think and this is the bit that's growing as we do more and more of this you know we can't be there the whole time is the concern the the the, the kind of the responsibility that we carry for putting people in Ukraine and for our Ukrainian volunteers who are going to the front line. Um, and I shared on my social media feed a few days ago, one of our vehicles that had 
you know, is has been mortared and shelled and has shrapnel. The people inside fortunately escaped; they were they were unharmed. But it's you know now it's kind of myself. It's because it's taking that carrying that responsibility for the people we're putting onto the ground, and also for our Ukrainian volunteers who are doing an amazing job. So you know it's just kind of it's a portfolio of, portfolio of challenges, some of which we've overcome, some of which you know we're working on have solutions, and the new one of that sort of feeling of responsibility is the indiscriminate. Uh, bombing and missile attacks grows rather than lessens. You know, it's that responsibility for the people who who help us, you know, of their own free will in Ukraine and the people, the training teams that go out. Uh, it's 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 very very interesting to to hear um, your perspective and, and learning from you. Now we would like to give the floor to one of our colleagues, uh, Patrick. Yeah, Mark, thank you so much for your inspiring presentation. Um, could you expand some more on your cooperation with NASA and um, what training you are providing to them and how it fits in with their future goals, plans, and uh, the plans of your organization? So it's yeah, Patrick, it's an interesting one because it wasn't in it wasn't one that we set out to develop, but it just happened by happen chance and sort of fortuitous sort of introductions. So we've been working with colleagues at NASA for well, I guess almost eleven years now. Um, one of the reasons why the the medical community at NASA and, um, like what World Extreme Medicine does, and I think it, I use that analogy of the stage where. It's one of the few stages in the world where you can have NASA sitting on the stage. You can have a special forces medical community sitting on the stage, along with the disaster and humanitarian. No uniforms. Politics is all about medicine. You know, there's no politics. It's all about the medicine. You know, they actually really, really appreciate the ability to learn from those communities because that type of remote medicine, you know, is the same remote medicine they have to practice in space because um there's a there's a talk in fact one of the main doctors we work with astronauts we work with there dr mike barrett did a talk a christmas lecture for the royal society in britain and they compared a paramedic bag you know the average paramedic bag carried in an ambulance in london with the medical kit they have on the international space station you know the medical bag for the paramedic was oh we can lift that one up the medical bag for the international space station was was virtually empty because there's so much they cannot do in space, you know, and as they, and as NASA sort of undergoes Artemis and, and heads towards the moon, and then hope um, and their plans then obviously to head to Mars, you know, that extreme bit of medicine becomes even more sort of poignant to them. And because those are big steps, especially the step to Mars, you know, there's lots of stuff they don't know, and which they have to mitigate. And so, learning from that sort of wider medical community, which are learning, which are with real world experience learning in remote and austere locations. They really appreciate that. We really appreciate in turn them showing their findings because they've got budgets that lots of organizations that work in the space don't have. So, you know, so their knowledge and their findings of their, you know, how long has NASA been going? But their decades of of research in remote medicine and how to keep their astronauts alive, you know, is really beneficial to the wider medical community. But also the science that goes on in the International Space Station, you know, sharing that knowledge with you know, the medical community on back on back on Earth has great benefits. So it's it's very much a two way sort of flow of information, and they they allow us to to use their training facility in uh, NASA Nemo when it's not being battered by the hurricanes. Um, so it's it's a sharing of knowledge. And that's that's kind of our relationship. We have for e each of our conferences so far. I've had a, a welcome message from the International Space Station. Last year, we were going to have a live broadcast from the International Space Station. But I don't, you probably don't remember, but last year there was quite a big delay with the astronauts going up, which meant actually it was getting a bit tight for our conference that, to get the live broadcast. So we decided they set it up. Well, we for our work with Paramount got Tom Cruise, and they offered up Richter Glover, who was a space uh, dragon capsule pilot. And we put them together in an interview. And, you know, whatever your thoughts about sort of, you know, actors in Hollywood, Tom Cruise did one of the best NASA interviews that has ever been done. He 
did absolutely masses of preparation and Victor was just the best person to be answering those questions. There was such a great energy. Do you know, and this is accessible not only to the medical community, but to, to lots of other people working in this space. So it's about sharing of knowledge. It's about sharing, um, trying to remove the politics and it's about just sharing experiences and making medicine better. So thank you so much. <laughs> Patrick. Thank you, thank you so much, uh, Patrick, for this very interesting question and leading to to this question, especially in the um, in the in the global community of of medicine. Uh, we have one question from our colleague Raquel. Have you received any resistance from the medical community because you are not a clinician by profession to perform these kind of trainings? So, I mean, yes, and essentially I, I sit in my company surrounded by medics and I'm virtually the only person who's not a medic. Um, so we get a lot of assistance and, yeah, and everybody on the faculty bar me and then one or two other exceptions, you know, are, are medics. And the medical community has been amazingly supportive of our efforts in, in Ukraine, but also in, in the other stuff that we do. And I feel extremely fortunate to be kind of, a, I guess, what would be the word, a welcome guest in the community. I think I, I think I can probably say that after 25 years. Um, and, you know, the extreme medicine, this bit of medicine that we work in attracts, you know, the some of the brightest and most energetic and adventurous medics in the world. And it's really quite an amazing place to be, to be honest. And, and the more people that we can reach outside of our kind of traditional markets of Europe and the UK and Australia, you know, if we can reach into the areas that the Rotary Club gets into in terms of Asia and sort of Far East and, and Africa and stuff, you know, that would for us be completing the circle because this type of medicine and also the people there's knowledge and experiences, bringing those two together would be incredibly powerful. And there's something we're working on more and more, but certainly spreading the word would help. I think there, the scope of, of your work is, it's incredible. I have a question. I was wondering, because uh, Doctors Without Borders was already there, I assume. So how is your uh, uh, competition or cooperation with them? Well, we work quite closely. So a lot of our, so we're primarily, if, if you know, in a normal circumstance, we, we're training people. So in a way, we're providing people who go to MSF or Doctors Without Borders better prepared than they would otherwise be. But, you know, a good third of our faculty work for MSF. Um, this is the first time that we've deployed onto the ground and I and I don't think we're going to make a habit of it because the people, organizations like MSF are so much better than we are. But in Ukraine, especially and specifically, there's just a huge vacuum. Um, and it's one that we, you know, felt able to to fill on this particular occasion. But, you know, for uh, Doctors Without Borders is a partner of our conference and, you know, and about a third of our faculty either are with msf or have been with msf and if they're not they are planning to so they're you know it's a kindred spirit but we typically are training where's they're delivering i just received one more question through our chat uh dr mark and uh this is a very interesting question hmm. what's next for world extreme medicine What's next? Well, I tell you what, I'm going to ask, answer Jeffrey's question, which says when there's so many different areas, how we change for the different scenarios. And, and I, that's a good question from Jeffrey in so much as it does. What we're trying to do is break down silos. So a lot of what we're training is not actually necessarily the clinical skills. It's the other it's the other non-clinical skills that go around that in terms of you know logistics and um, security and self-awareness, working as a team. So a lot of what we do is is teaching a mindset and teaching adaptability and giving them the ability, clinicians to have that foundation so they feel comfortable working in these austere locations. And they, you know, then they supplement them with specific clinical skills depending on what they're doing. So, you know, that's in terms of the answer for, for Jeffrey, which is a good question. And in terms of what next for us, do you know, to be honest, there is no grand plan. We've always just done what we have felt has been right and it's led us down an increasingly interesting road so you know i think a big thing for us is creating great is more is more access so that we can you know in an ideal world what we would have is a sponsor for the conference so that we actually we could give 
digital access to people in uh, lower income countries, um, free access or, you know, highly discounted access. I mean, conferences are expensive. And the problem is, you know, it's, it's really difficult to get that financial model right. But if we could get a sponsor, that would allow us to, I think, broaden quite considerably, you know, access to and, you know, be able to share uh, that experience that sits within the conference more widely. Um, you know, there was more, I think, in terms of we go nowhere unless actually science and academia and research underpin what is being delivered. So improving the standards of that and pushing the boundaries on that every day that we do our work. And I think it's the other thing is about, you know, one of the cornerstones of, and we know this anecdotally, one of the cornerstones of what we do, we know generally, you know, 99% of the time, medics that do this type of work and go into these austere ranks return to their normal clinical practice better clinicians they would have picked up clinical skills undoubtedly but they would also picked up you know a realization that the systems they work in compared to other places are good and that sort of is a cornerstone but also they would have picked up all these sort of non-clinical skills that i've been speaking about the ability to empathize with people to communicate better to be good team members but also team leaders you know and taking that back into their mainstream mainstream everyday clinical career to the hospitals and the you know the doctors clinics that you and i go and visit you know having somebody there that's got a wider picture you know, when you've got a problem, I think helps considerably. I think that's one of the cornerstones of what we're doing is actually, it's not just about delivering medicine in remote places, it's also about improving everyday medicine. At the beginning of your presentation, Dr. Mark, you, you mentioned about the importance of the collaboration between research and academia. Uh, and I've been working in research and academia over, over the last couple of years. I'm really curious to, know a little bit more about the postgraduate program and the collaboration and partnership with the University of Exeter uh, Medical College. Well, thank you for asking the question. It's one of my sort of pet projects, I guess. It's um, so it's 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 a relatively new program. I think we're five or no, we must be six or seven years into it now. Um, and it's as, as you mentioned, it's a postgraduate project. Uh, primarily for clinicians or medical professionals. But as I mentioned, you know, there's, there is clinical training, but a lot of it is that the other stuff that packages their, their ability to deliver stuff remotely. Um, what we're seeing now, and it's beginning to happen, is, you know, people from the master's program, some of the dissertations that are being written are amazing. And actually, we're, we're trying to work out a system we can disseminate them more widely because they really are pushing on the air the, the the limits of the boundaries of what we know because there's a the dearth of of research for instance about female explorers there's lots of male explorers there's lots of sort of military sort of research but there's there's a dearth in terms of how women react in super cold environments and, and it turns out they, they do just as well to be honest but you know so that needs to be consolidated and pushed out but some of the people now finishing their MCs and starting to go into the doctors really are doing original research that's never been done by anybody else. Um, and once we get those foundation stones and sort of start throwing away some of the older knowledge that's been accepted as fat for so many years and actually delivering proper research that highlights where this medicine needs to go, then I think we're on a good good cornerstone. If we and we have a as I mentioned, a program starting in Northeastern and Boston and another one in Australia. And if we can get that geographic spread, I think it becomes a really solid foundation. My very, very last question as a follow-up is I we know that this this is specifically for for professionals in the medical field, but it could also be um open to other professions it can be it's something that i'm educating it's something i'm ed educating the universities on because essentially because i'm a non-clinician knowing you know knowing how a medical mind works and what my doctors and my, my paramedics and nurses need when i'm an expedition makes me a much better leader because i can i can cater for their needs so whilst the the universities have kind of insisted that the op op the public facing bit of the the wordage is all about medical professionals we also accept in exceptional non-medics where you know going back to anna's example you know the 
MSF or Doctors Without Borders logistician, you know, if you're working in a remote area and your and your medical team get taken hostage, it's your logistician or your sort of senior manager that have to sort of manage that. So it's you know having knowing what those medics are going through and the way they think and the the stresses and and their their demands and their sort of mental health, you know, as a non-clinician is a really valuable skill set. So. So there is a there is a sort of doorway for exceptional non-medics as well because it's really valuable for those people to know. I think I waffled on the answer a little bit, but um, you know what I mean. Definitely, absolutely. We have one very last question that we don't really want to miss, and I received this um, question in in one of the private uh, chats. Mark, what was the first thing you thought when you faced that crocodile? My first thought was Frank, Frank Crikey, although the word might have been slightly different. Frank Crikey, I'm the third person in the line. There were two people in front of me going to land on the rock before me. That's what I thought. And then my second thought was, actually, I want to go onto the rock quicker. I don't want to be the third person, the tail and Charlie. It's always the tail and Charlie that gets taken off in the films. So it was some of the first one was few. And then second was ah, Crikey. <laughs> Thank you so much for your feedback, for all your answers. Uh, I believe we all have enjoyed so much uh, this program session. Uh, we're definitely uh, glad to, to have you with us. Thank you everyone for your questions and for joining us in this recording. Uh, you may be hearing these, this recording on your favorite postcard service. You can also watch it on our YouTube channel or you can view it in our website. If the latter, we really hope that you can scroll down and add a little bit more in the discussion section. Uh, you're also welcome to leave any comments on what you think about this program and also to reply to any other uh, comments in, in our website. I think this is a great way to collaborate and to enhance uh, our... So with that, I would like to thank Professor Mark for being here with us. And we would like to give you back uh, the mic for one last word. Thank you so much. Thank, well, thank you for inviting me. It's been an honor to speak to the sort of global Rotary community. And um, please feel free to reach out if I can be of any assistance to any medical professionals out there. Or conversely, if you're able to help with our efforts in medics for Ukraine, please do feel free to, 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 to contact us. But thank you for the, the honor of being invited. Thank you.